Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. Madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I done well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, but not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? They don't need us to kick them around the place. You could say so what? The police in riot gear with Trump. I am ashamed to call myself a European. The recognition of Guaido. elected gobshite is an absolute embarrassment. No, you did use the word gobshite, and, sir. Uh, I would re- reprimand you. Hello, 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 and welcome to I Foresee Trouble with Dalian Wallace. It's episode 24. We're still in the parliament and yeah, we've had a, a funny enough week. We've had the State of the Union address where President Ursula von der Leyen came to the Parliament gave a very long speech. I think it was double the length it was supposed to be. It was an hour really? and a half or something. I don't know. Yeah. No one told us how long it was. 70 minutes, I think. Well, no, yeah. we know how long it was. So, so so minutes, so we'll never get back. Yeah. But, um, the state of it all. Absolute right? state yeah. of the union. Yeah. So um, <laughs> anyway, it was interesting because she touched on a lot of policy areas, gave a bit of insight of what's coming down the line. Claire, you spoke on the Schengen and COVID response, this kind of uncoordinated uh, response across the member states towards well, COVID restrictions. Now. I think it's a little bit ironic that we mm-hmm. have all of this talk six months after the biggest pandemic in our, our lifetime that they're actually sitting down to look at coordination and deal with the chaos that's out there, that different countries have different code signs and you can travel from one area to another with free movement, another area you can't do that and all this chaos so everyone's gone, oh thank god at last there's going to be a bit of coordination and then out comes the Irish government yesterday with a whole new list a new green list, Italy's off Greece is off, all this chaos and you go, what are these clowns doing I mean, Ireland is hurdling into absolute mayhem it's probably in the middle of it now and it just seems completely mental that they're going there when everybody knows there has to be some coordinated response it's it's crazy yeah, yeah. i just had a phone call from someone this morning uh, in dublin airport um, nine of them couldn't uh, fail to get on a flight to brussels uh, because the they filled in the form on the phone but the, this morning the phone wasn't giving them back their pin number system was down so they all asked if they could fill in hard copies um, which I think is normal enough I think that's what the roads allow no weren't having it wouldn't really? accept them yeah and uh, they all missed their flight well um, obviously well it's amazing how anger. late Ireland was even just getting an electronic form do you know that took a long time just, look I mean the airlines are screaming and I mean I, I never thought I'd see the day that I'd be thinking that Michael O'Leary was talking sense but um, he's right and Aer Lingus are right. And I know both companies have treated their workers shamefully in this pandemic and have to take responsibility for that. But my God, the government's changing and flopping around is not helping. I mean, imagine all the people who'd booked to go on holidays to Italy, for example, thinking that they didn't have to quarantine when they came back, blah, blah, blah. Suddenly that's going to change. Mm. Um, now, people are being cautious and I know not many people are going on holidays, but a lot of people are in a really bad place uh, mentally with the lockdown. Some people are going for a little break or whatever, which there's nothing wrong with, or but they're made to feel even, like yeah. prior or events that yeah. are taking place. And we contrast that with the fact that over here, 
it's not perfect, my God, but not by a long shot. But we are not subjected to the constant melodrama of COVID. And life is pretty much going on. I mean, obviously, we have to walk around with the masks and all the rest. But the restaurants are open, the bars are open, the hairdressers, everything is as of normal. It's just, I, I, yeah, Ireland if, is if, really if, making the situation worse. I mean, we wear the mask 100% of the time now. We've known the streets, right? Um, but if it wasn't for the mask, you would actually think that everything was normal in Brussels. Yeah. Um, everything seems to be just going on about its way. Well, the pubs are open anyway for and, a start. And yeah. the pubs are open. <laughs> um, last night, uh, Shamrock Rovers were playing, Mila, playing Milan yeah, in, uh, in Tala. Nobody in the stadium. Nobody. Right, I mean, how in God's name can they not start sit two or three meters apart in the stadium? The German league is uh, this weekend are letting in up to ten thousand into the stadiums. Right, I mean, Germany's statistics are pretty not much, much different from Ireland's. Right, um, I don't understand. Do they not have confidence in themselves to even organise it in such a way that they can keep the rules? But then, uh, having said that, uh, I mean. When I was home, I noticed, I mean, all the pubs were, were closed, but then, so the, the only pubs that could open, of course, were those that could sell food, right? So they were very, they were much busier than usual because the small pubs were closed. So people uh, were probably going in larger numbers to those places because of the, the fact that the small pubs were closed. And the lack of consistency mm. in how things were happening. Some places were really good at keeping the rules. Some places were not. But from what I could see, there's no inspection, mm. right? So why don't they let up all the pubs open and make sure that they adhere to what rules are put in place and monitor them? And if anyone breaks the rules, well, look, close them for a month. Mm. I think they're terrifying people and I think people in Ireland because they've been locked down for so long and are exposed to this constant you know mainline item in the media every day is Corona, Corona, Corona it's sort of warped the national consciousness Mm. like I mean countries like Germany and so on and France these aren't irresponsible nations whatever we might think of them they're modern scientifically based economies that you'd be presuming are making their decisions based on on good public health information as well. So how is Ireland so out of sync with all of this? They're really adding to things. I don't know if there's going to be an explosion or people will take it or what's going to happen. But to me, they are seriously not only damaging um, businesses and workers' conditions in Ireland by their flopping around, like, but the mental health and well-being of citizens has got to be yeah. severely impacted and by so this. And so from it's a European angle on it as well, it's looking at how all the member states, not even just as countries, but as regions and cities, are all having completely different approaches, the red zones, orange zones. We were all supposed to go to Strasbourg there this week and we didn't last minute. We found out that it was cancelled because it was a red zone. So it's trying to, I guess, this debate in the plenary was to discuss how to coordinate that, as you say, six months later, Mm. (laughs) um, in a way that makes things easier and more understandable. So let's have a little listen to some of your speech there, Claire. I obviously welcome the fact that some attempt is now being made to coordinate the COVID response, but it's pretty incredible that we're six months into the most serious pandemic in living memory in one of the richest regions in the world with a massive institutional bureaucracy and we're only getting around to it now. 
We cannot even compare COVID statistics because of the different arrangements in place in member states. So is it any wonder that EU citizens are looking on in disbelief? This is a single virus. So why is there so many different responses? People want to follow the rules, but it's difficult when the rules change and when they're inconsistent. The ECDC all along advised against border controls, but they were ignored. And the problem you see is what it needed was a politically coordinated response, but it didn't come. It needed solidarity, but you can't develop solidarity overnight. There was no solidarity when Irish single mothers paid the price of Munich stockholders in the financial crisis, and no solidarity for the thousands of desperate migrants on the Greek islands. So it's no wonder there was no solidarity on COVID. It's an awful pity we're coming to this situation now, but I hope we learn the lessons of it. One could be forgiven for thinking that things seem to have got worse since the new government was formed. Uh, Stephen Donnelly, uh, by no surprise, is completely out of his depth. And uh, Simon Harris is starting to look great. I, th- I think he'll become popular again <laughs> and people are going to miss him. See, he already has. Yeah. I'd say they're clamouring for him to come back. Um, yeah. I, I think... I think Michal Martin made a huge mistake. It was actually probably unfair to Stephen Donnelly as well, because I, I think he's, he's completely out of his depth. And, and I think uh, it'll be the death of him. I mean, Allowing himself be exposed uh, like that. I mean, it's, yeah. he's, he's not having a good day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, even the stuff about them cancelling the doll during the week. Oh, oh we're going God. to cancel it. We won't cancel it. Uh, Stephen has the snuffles and uh, then the whole co- the government shuts down and then it turns out, no, he's grand. Uh, and bad and all as that was, I mean, like on top of that, people were saying, hang on a minute, how come he can get a test in less than, a test result in less than 24 hours? And all the plebs yeah. then are waiting, people suffering and, and, you know, really severely impacted because they can't get a result for days. Oh, Another example of, you know, who you know and the, the high and mighty rules for one and, and, and not and, rules and for the School teachers now are going mad because if there's outbreaks in the school, they've still to come into work. Mm. And uh, whereas the, the cabin were going to go home. Yeah. So, the whole thing shut down, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't make it up. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, I don't know if you've noticed, but Jim O'Callaghan, right, would be a pretty senior player in Fianna Fáil. He was a, a shoe in for Minister for Justice. There's probably no one fit to clean his boots. He didn't get the gig. But he's commenting from the sidelines and he was very quick out of the traps to say that sending the cabinet home because Stephen Donnelly wasn't feeling great was madness, right? It's unusual for a senior player like him to be sniping a bit like that. And I would say there's some serious problems uh, afoot in Fianna Fáil. I think, uh, apart from the fact, listen, there are 10% in the opinion uh, ratings. If there's an election, they're going to get wiped. Leo would be very tempted to pull the plug when it's more convenient to have an election. Um, And I think he's laughing his head off at the moment as Fianna Fáil uh, go from blunder to blunder. Well, as you were saying, you know, Cueve had been out of the traps sort of making the point even before they went into coalition that that would be the ruination of them and then he was being given out to for coming out and saying that again. But as he said himself, when is a good time to speak out? We're already plummeting, is it? When we've... Everybody is gone, is that the time to speak <laughs> oh, yeah. out? When we you wait know? till we're at zero yeah, yeah. in the opinion polls, then yeah. we talk about it, will so, we? Yeah. Will we address the problem then? <laughs> yes. In other news, who's our agriculture minister again? 
Charlie McConnell. Oh, yeah. Okay, that one. Okay. Nice fellow. Just trying to. Is he? Is he? Well, I was reading something funny because we talked about before on the podcast about this farm to fork strategy, this EU strategy on food, sustainable food systems. It's quite radical for an EU. A document about changing systems, about pesticides, about fertilizers, about all this. And to date, the Irish government hasn't taken the most um, positive approach to it. It's seen as too transformative or too radical. Yes, God forbid. We, we have like to. our chemicals yes. in our food. So um, <laughs> it seems the previous um, agricultural ministers took a bit of a chilly response to it. And then we have our new one, Charlie McConnellogue who um, obviously All didn't the get the memo. I think he mustn't have got the memo because he came out with this really positive stance on farm to fork saying it ensures resilience at every link in the food production chain. So good on you, Charlie. Fair right behind well, you. We meet them next week. Hopefully he, he doesn't out, get so, a, yeah. a briefing from the civil servants and changes his mind, but we'll <laughs> yeah. be following that one. Um, yeah. Mick, you were speaking in the plenary as well on some legislation you were working on on climate change and shipping. <laughs> The MV committee showed real ambition in voting for a radical expansion of the scope of the Commission's proposal. We are proposing to include shipping in the EU emissions trading system without further delay with this regulation. Market-based solutions for the climate crisis, such as ETS, have generally failed. However, in this instance, we are proposing to frame shipping's inclusion in ETS with a binding regulatory target of 40% emissions reductions per transport work by 2030. The rapporteur's report is mainly concerned with emissions efficiency. Shipping emissions are directly related to global trade and consumption. Therefore, in order to reduce absolute greenhouse gas emissions from maritime transport, in addition to emissions per transport work, the EU must promote and pursue a global degrowth strategy rather than the new growth strategy proposed in the European Green Deal. In Amendment 71, I also propose to delete the exemption for warships. Militaries are massive polluters. The US military, for example, doesn't just destroy the lives of more people and communities than anyone else, as Julian Assange has highlighted. They're also one of the biggest polluters on the planet, and I see no good reason to exempt any warships. Um, tell us a bit about that. For, the long, for a long time now, shipping has got away with a free ride on emissions. They paid bugger all for any damage that uh, the ships were causing. So legislation is being developed uh, at the parliament level. Uh, the commission are not mad about it, and, but it's, it's actually uh, it's passing its way through the parliament and uh, lots of it have passed and, uh, and it's actually pretty good and uh, the green uh, individual responsible for it, Jota Pallas, uh, has actually been very good on it and um, she's made a lot of progress with it and she got practically all of them on board except EPP which is a fair achievement. Um, really what it does, it includes shipping in the EU emissions trading system uh, immediately. And um, listen, we've always said that market-based solutions to the climate crisis, such as ETS, uh, they generally fail. But in this instance, uh, it's proposing to frame shipping's inclusion in ETS uh, with a binding regulatory target of 40% emission reductions per transport work by 2030. I mean, it really is a big uh, move forward. They won't be able to apply it for every boat on the planet, mm. but they'll be able to apply it for any boats landing in ports in Europe or leaving from them. Now, there's two exemptions, which I obviously objected to. And one Let of them... Let me guess. One of them has to do with... 
military or something about you're, you're, war. Uh, listen, see, you were listening. Because that's the comment. <laughs> everything, everything in environmental listen, I mean, legislation. It, it, it beggars belief that warships were exempted. Now, it's like as if they serve and protect the people. So we'd be nice to them. But in actual fight, there's no ship docking in any port in Europe that causes as much damage and harm as warships. It's a shocking figure, but the US military, they have over 800 military bases worldwide. Yeah. They have an incredible number of ships on the water. They're the biggest polluter on the planet. No other entity pollutes more than the American military uh, operation. So I had an amendment in. It didn't pass. And another, another thing that was in that amendment was uh, factory ships for fishing. Yeah. Ships over 4,000 gigatons uh, were off the hook, literally. <laughs> we're also, we're, are getting off the hook as well. The ships that are causing more damage in the ocean and to the fish stock than any other uh, are the ones who get exemption. You couldn't make it up. Well, that's pretty hard to believe when you think that <laughs> like, it's the terrible. biggest things but, in the But the, but the legislation is good and Jutta did really well with it. Fair play to her. What's impressive about it there, and you said it, um, is that it is ETS, which are usually against its um, market-based mechanisms of uh, a market of trading um, emissions, which is just really silly and it's, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. Um, but it's actually locked in a target for decarbonisation. So it means that we have some accountability at least to see if we're on track or not. Um, and it's not just a fluctuating market like we have for the the emissions trading system as it is. Uh, so interesting yeah. to see how that goes. And and I probably should point out the people of Ireland should know that uh, their their Fianna Fáil boys and Fianna Gael boys and girls in the European Parliament voted against against my amendment. They think that uh, <laughs> factory ships should be exempted. They think that the military ships should be exempted. But given that they were uh, all in favour of allowing Shannon to be used as a US military base to, uh, where the Americans use a launching pad to kill uh, and destroy communities uh, in many parts of the world, mm. um, given that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are happy with that, I suppose it's probably no surprise that they're going to give an exemption as well to warships. Yeah. So that piece of legislation now is voted, it was passed. So next step is the trilogues. It'll go into months of debates now with the council and they'll come out with an, an outcome that will be voted in a few months. So let's see. And then, then it goes into law. So I mean, we, we, I mean the, the people at home should probably focus more um, on what goes on at council because this is time. where the member states yeah. come in. And there will be, a, 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 there will be fight back from the member states. The, the lobby industry will get into them and they'll want to push back on this. And we should be prepared. People at home should be putting more pressure on the different ministers that go to these council meetings. Mm -hmm. And ma they're making decisions and the Irish people don't even know what's happening. Yeah. And, and, and sadly, the media at home are really culpable. The likes of RTE and the Irish Times should be giving it so much more coverage and highlighting what the minister does and says. Now, a lot of it is in secret, of course, right? But you should, they should be highlighting what's at stake, what's up for discussion, yep. what's our position. 
put pressure on the minister. What's your stand on this? What position are you going to take on this? Don't even bother knowing when it's on unless there was something about Brexit they or something. They don't even it. give us the result a lot of the yeah. time. As no, the no, but it was is in secret the and we got... Um, it's very undemocratic. La- in the mm. last stall, we had to fight for the right to even have reports back to the Irish Parliament. So we used to have council statements, European council statements, both before and after the council meetings and that became a regular slot um, I don't know if the new doll is doing the same. I assume there, there were very important sessions for us. We always saw time in it. But I mean, there was no media ever there, never got reported on anything. And as Mick says, most of the stuff is already behind closed doors. So we were getting a glimmer of an insight in maybe 10 minutes at the start from the Taoiseach who then go away and leave it to the junior uh, European minister. And with the new European minister now being Thomas Bourne, <laughs> Well, you know what I mean? But it's like, uh, so in parallel, in parallel to you working on this yeah. in the European Parliament, the Irish government and civil servants are also working on it and feeding into it. Nobody knows about it, of course, in Ireland. Um, and that's going to then influence the EU position and then they go and defend it. And what always happens is in trilogues, the parliament goes into battle there with the council and then it's always a weaker outcome because the council is always, always taking a more conservative position. It's just always what the member states come out with and the compromise is always a step down. So, And it's the same for every issue. I mean, there yeah. has been, we mentioned it last week about the devastating fire in the Moria camp in, in the island of Lesbos in Greece where all of the, you know, thousands upon thousands of refugees were left in appalling conditions in the worst refugee camp in Europe. There was a big fire and uh, they had to be, you know, moved out of there. A lot of Irish people were worried about that, at the ones who were on the cold face who didn't get near enough um, attention. It's been a you know, key debate here in the Parliament. Ursula von der Leyen mentioned it in her speech about, oh, we, you know, they would be moving into new tents. Now, we were involved in protests here in Belgium, obviously, yesterday, saying they don't need new tents or new camps. They need relocation. And in that context, uh, we hear that Ireland offered to take four four unaccompanied minors. Now, you'd be better off pretending you didn't hear the question uh, <laughs> when they asked you and saying, no, we'll take four. There's 13,000 people who've been burnt out. There. We'll take four children, uh, sir. That was what they say Ireland offered. So it's the point I make is that kind of, there's a big European debate going on. Mm-hmm. We're raising it here. A lot of people are concerned about it. There's pressure on the member states as well, where they all have to chip in to deal with this. Can we share out people around Europe? Ireland says four and the media isn't even really scrutinising it, yeah. you know. So it's absolutely appalling. It's a camp that was built for 750 people. Mm-hmm. And as Claire says, there's over 13,000 in it. They say it's that the people are living in the worst living conditions anywhere on the planet and that if they were animals, mm. that people would be going mad that animals would be treated so bad. For von der Leyen to get up there and pretend that she cares and then do bugger all about it. I mean, we played a part in destroying their homes. We have European countries still flooding the likes of Saudi Arabia with arms who are involved in a genocide in Yemen. We make money selling arms to sell to countries like Saudi Arabia and UAE 
who destroy their homes, they leave their country looking for a chance to make a living somewhere. They end up in their camps like this and we say we care about people. I, think, I mean, to me, it was one of the most sickening bits of, of underlying speech because, you know, we had all of this propaganda about, you know, invest EU, new generation EU, solidarity EU, etc. And we, and she was going, oh, the poor people in the Moria camp. And I can tell you now that we have rallied round and we will, they will be moving to a new camp. Since I've been here and been a member of the Libe Committee, I've been writing to Greek ministers. We've had Greek ministers and the Commission in over a year ago saying that that camp needed to be evacuated, that there were thousands of children there. Now we've had a devastating fire and now she's kind of gone, oh, we're responding. They're not responding. They didn't respond last year and they didn't respond this year. And all of her speech was uh, caricatured by that, wasn't it? You had this fancy, stupid, vacuous language and sloganeering that was a million miles away from the reality of what's going on in Europe, you know? Yeah. It's sickening, it was. So that's the State of the Union address, which is what we had um, on Wednesday. Um, it was, as we said, it was a long debate. So one of the big things that Ursula von der Leyen touched on was this new migration pact that's coming out next week. And we know migration is a very sensitive topic in the EU and in the Council. It's blocked the reform of Dublin. Uh, she's trying to get around this now with a new mandatory solidarity mechanism. So we'll see what that looks like. But not only is, was there quite vacuous language on that, but she was also playing into the right a bit as well. She was very much talking about sending people back. They don't have their papers if they don't fit the criteria. She's very strong in getting that message across. She wants to kind of pacify the right on that. This as well. is a key part of the package yeah. is what they call the returns, that a new migration pact has to be um, merged with a new returns pact of, of sending people back. And yeah. that's hugely problematic. I mean, we were looking at... Uh, there was a really good report done by Brown University there during the week about the amount of refugees displaced by uh, US military activity, both internally in their own countries and across borders uh, since 9-11. And, and the figures are, and they say it's conservative. The, the conservative figure was 37 million. Uh, the higher one was 59 million uh, that they could still stand over. But most of the very small numbers of them are coming to Europe, like mm. hardly any. Uh, and, you know, the obsession is it's too many, which mm. is just utterly ludicrous, you yeah. know. She did say, which is interesting, it's um, it's not optional to save lives at sea. Yeah. So, so she's trying to get a strong message across from that, knowing very well that her group EPP voted against a search and rescue resolution mm. a few months ago. Do you know? Well, so we're, not, we're saving bugger all at sea yeah. at the moment. Yeah. It, the... That operation, Irene, is just hell-bent that they're supposed to be inspecting arms going going uh, into Libya by sea and they're supposed, in the case of them seeing a boat in trouble or anything, they're supposed to go there. They're supposed to tell the other, yeah. tell the Coast Guard yeah. to go there. But in actual mean? fact, uh, the Coast Guard, which are run by the Mafia in Libya, uh, are up to their necks in all the shenanigans going on there as well and the whole thing is not to rescue people at the water, it's to stop them getting into it and if they find them in it, they, they send them back. Ursula von der Leyen like, knows well that, say, the Greek Coast Guard has put people out into basically inflatable dinghies and pushed them back uh, to, to uh, Turkey and so on. She, she knows this is going on. Now, you could look at the speech and then say, well, she does know that, but she's trying to be stateswoman-like and keep all sides on together. You know, wrap your knuckles there, wrap your mm. knuckles 
there, try and keep the member states together because, you know, it's a consensual thing. But the scariest thing for me about our speech was, was that we need to move to qualified majority voting, uh, she says, to a big cheer of hooray, hooray. Getting consensus is a burden. Uh, so let's go to ram a majority view, which, uh, I mean, is let's, deeply um, troubling. Let's run through a few of the key messages and let's go into commenting them. So one of the big ones was about uh, greenhouse gas emissions. We're going to have this new target, she was saying, of 55% by 2030. Now, we've been saying for months that that's going to be way too mm. little. They didn't even look into uh, going higher than 55, which at least 65 is what we need to be looking at to be on a 1.5 pathway. Um, so it is higher than what was currently the 40%, but it's not a bit like it's paraded around like it's something fantastic. She promised to protect lives and livelihoods, stabilise the economy mm. and rally the global response in coronavirus pandemic. She proposed uh, building a stronger European health union and various measures to strengthen cross-border coordination. Uh, there will be a new approach to migration, which we touched on, the new pact, which will come out next week. We'll see what's in that. Um, she promised a more assertive EU response to global events, not to compromise on human rights, discrimination and hate. That was actually quite a big focus on yeah. LGBTI and, and racism, actually. Um, an EU version of the US Magnitsky Act. Always great when we replicate US stuff, isn't it? Mm. Uh, enabling sanctions to be imposed on human rights abusers. So that's something she really tried to stress in light of, of recent events, I think. Um, and then that the EU would take more leadership on the digital transformation, especially on data, technology and infrastructure. She's trying to make this a big key part of her commissionership. And on Brexit, of course, she war warned um, that the UK over the agreed and ratified divorce agreement. Uh, she tried to be very strong on this. She quoted Margaret Thatcher, knowing that mm. that'll get to them, and saying that this is a matter of law, trust and good faith. So there's some of the key messages she had. What do you want to come in on? Just to start, your first one on the 55%. I mean, the science says that if we don't go to 65, we're in awful trouble. The science says that we have no hope of meeting the Paris Agreement uh, targets if we don't go to 65 She's going to 55 and saying we're great. Yeah. Well, in actual fact, we're doing an incredible disservice to the planet and to our children because somebody, somebody is going to have to take the hard decision sometime. And the longer we postpone it, the worse things are going to get. And the more difficult it is going to be for the next generation to actually face up to the problems of climate change because 55 means that we're parking a lot of the problem and things are going to get worse yeah. rather and, than better. And what's funny about it as well, well, actually what's very sad, is that this is based on an impact assessment, not an impact assessment of needs or of climate change or what we need, but about how our industry can cope with this. So she very much thinks that our target should be decided by what our industry and economy can cope with versus the climate a pathway that's necessary as if that's something we can c compromise with or balance or that our industry is something equally important as mm. actual um, climate change reduction yeah, targets. Mean, so it's completely non-scientifically based. That's the mm. troubling thing about it. It's completely like, yeah. She's suspicious. coming up with a, with a, a new a new growth strategy, even in the European Green Deal, right? Whereas in actual fact, it's the growth strategy we need. Mm. But they're not, even, they're not even close to going to that space. 
we'd raised the issues of the protests in Bulgaria, but I mean, it struck me and it struck all the people in Bulgaria as well when she was doing her speech of the nation and we're going to be on the big scene and penalising people who are misbehaving and Magnitsky acts and all of this. And she's going on about Belarus. She didn't mention a single thing about Bulgaria, where for 70 days now the people have been on the streets, been met with state force, but demand and access to have uh, another election to hold their government to account and nobody says anything. She says, oh, we're going to deal with all this. We can't have EU money being used to further uh, corruption. Hooray! And then no one says anything. Well, it actually is and everyone knows that it is and she wants to come up with her Magnitsky Act, which Um, is sort of an anti-Russian thing. And you said it already, Claire, about this this qualified majority, so the two-thirds, whatever, voting for sanctions is going to be a big thing. The fact that we haven't sanctioned uh, Belarus Mm. or anything about this. So that's going. To, that was met with cheers as well, yeah. that we would actually override uh, <laughs> yeah. consensus I mean, on this incredible. and that it was seen as something positive. So mm. that's they, quite worrying. They completely ignore the fact that most of these sanctions are actually against international law. Mm. They're illegal. Not only do they not work, they penalise the people, not the governments. The governments still have a good dinner in the evening and these fellas have plenty of wealth stocked away. Listen, there's a lot of bad governments all over the planet, right? And they're, they're not confined to Europe. They're everywhere, right? And there's there's very few leaders that we'd say that we'd like and we don't like Lukashenko either. Uh, uh, but we don't want the West interfering there. Let the Belarusians get rid of them and I hope to God they do. But if we interfere and bring our neoliberalism with us, the Belarusian people will be wondering which was the better because mm-hmm. we're we're just biting at the bit now to get into the place. I mean, some of the Europe, some of the East European countries have already uh, been pushing Lithuania and Poland now recognise Tikhonovska as the real leader of Belarus. And the parliament will as soon as Lukashenko's it, it term is, is finished. Unbelievable. It, it, this is more of, of, the, of the Guaido shite in Venezuela. <laughs> I mean, Guaido was, this one wasn't elected, right? And it does look like she's a bit of a puppet of the US. She's already been sitting down with the Deputy Secretary of State of America. She says she's neutral. Well, she hasn't sat down with the Russians. Right? <laughs> and uh, th- that's not what the people, the be- people of Belarus want, deserve independence. And, but the, only if they get rid of Lukashenko themselves, and they will eventually if we leave them alone, right? Let them look after their own problems. Mm. If we interfere, we'll make things worse. I have, I, I challenge anyone to tell me of a Western intervention that made things better. And von der Leyen, on about human rights, human rights. I actually, I'm starting to get, I feel funny when I even hear the mm. word now. We use... The West has been using, for over 40 years now, since the end of the Cold War, they've been using human rights and humanitarian intervention as a weapon. It's a weapon of war. If you're worried about human rights, we're robbing the global south blind still. Western companies, European, Canadian, American, are raiding the mineral wealth from Africa and South America and parts of Asia too in places. And we literally, we pay them bugger all for their product, for their minerals. We, 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 we bribe the officials. They give out about governments being in Africa uh, and South America being corrupt. They are. And we're part of the problem. It's the Western companies that are bribing them. them. As well. <laughs> right? I mean, in the Sahel, which I know we've talked about before, I mean, there's 70% of the people can't read and write in Niger and uh, Mali. 
70%. And, Ch- and Chad is not much better. 70% poverty rate. The French are down there. And the UN are down there. The EU is up to its neck in the place, making the place safe for the French to exploit it and rob the uranium out of it to feed their nuclear plants and electricity. Well, you heard as well Ursula um, make very strong mentions about the partnership with Africa and this new strategy with Africa. What she means is the exploitation of Africa. And if she's worried about human rights, right, she should stop enshrining poverty in Africa because that's what they're doing. Mm. They are enshrining poverty. The Africans are not going to get out of poverty while uh, Europe and uh, the US uh, rob it blind and keep them poor because that's what we're doing. Uh, talk, I mean, having these relationships, right? It is colonialism. Mm. It's but with a new name today. It's financial imperialism. Yeah, and another thing interesting on the international affairs part of the speech, I think, was the relationship with China because it was seen as very much um, we need to be afraid of China. This was a Mm. big message from the speech because it was we can't have our corona response boost the Chinese economy. We can't be, you know, it was very much be careful of where China is and all this. Um, And then, of course, she talked about Turkey as well, about the drilling in the Eastern Med, about Russia um, with this poisoning. So quite a strong international affairs. Because our uh, bonds with the United States, which can never be broken, yes. never. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but interestingly, the only part that was about internal issues was in relation to Poland and mm. human rights. And she was talking about the LGBT free zones. Mm. She did her best, I think, to have a very strong message on that, to, yeah. um, condemning it, yeah. which isn't easy given that she's from this conservative group, that she's from a party that doesn't even support gay marriage or whatever. Mm. Um and it does need to be called out in Poland. Like the, the, Poland's gone to absolute. I like, think it, one, she one was third of Poland. On that. Yeah. One third of Poland has now mm. declared itself an LGBTI free zone. So, I think a big theme of her speech was against anti hate um, about racism. She actually probably made the biggest, the highest level commitment to addressing structural racism in the EU that we've ever heard. Not to say that it was good or anything, but it was the highest level we've mm. heard before. Talking about algorithms and racism, talking mm. about structural racism. We never hear this really. And I think but it's still in a criminal say, justice framework. But, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's important to say, like, why did she do that? And it should be a lesson for people who organise is that the reason why she was so strong is that the citizens of Europe have been so strong on this and there's been an explosion from young people following the Black Lives Matter uh, movements and so on. That was replicated a little bit in Ireland, well, a fair bit in Ireland, but huge movements actually in parts of Europe. And when you consider um, coronavirus and that lockdowns, it was even more significant. So I do think the people are putting pressure on. They're definitely putting on uh, pressure all over Europe and in Poland itself um, over the um, homophobic legislation there and the absolute violation of of, uh, fundamental rights there. It's so glaring now that they can't ignore it. And this is a message that I've kind of been saying to people in Bulgaria. Look, it is difficult to make a breakthrough, but unless people start to get organised and that citizens show their power, well, nothing will change because we've made the point before. Like change doesn't come from politicians. Politicians usually follow. So while we would give her credit for being strong on the issue, she's only strong on them because the people have put them on the agenda and she's up against some pretty serious reactionary forces there. That's true. Um, and they're quite happy to have them there as long as they don't rock the boat too much um, as we see in the likes of uh, Bulgaria. So there is that hypocrisy then again at the, at the heart of the EU. But there is a debate to be had is how does the EU exert its authority? 
and use the funding that's there? And when does that overstep the mark in terms of people's national competencies or the right for people to do things themselves in their own countries. It's a debate on many issues and we should tease them out a bit. And we had a bit of a debate this week around some of the nuances and complexities if you take the own resources debate, which again is is kind of similar, where the EU now for the first time is going to raise uh, money, well, not for the first time, but it's it's going to bring in a sort of a tax, a digital, breakthrough, yeah, a no digital tax. Now, the European Commission has wanted this for years because they're a monolithic bureaucracy that have come together and created this massive centre. So they need a taxation base to feed off or a funding stream beyond, say, the member states, which is how they're funded at the moment. And people in Ireland probably think, oh, well, Ireland's a, a net recipient of the uh, EU. We, we we joined it and we got loads of money. No, no, no. We are one of the biggest, actually, contributors to the EU budget now, even though we're a very small country. So the idea now coming out of the corona crisis and the big bill uh, of the, the package, who's going to pay, is very much centre stage. So one of the ideas was that we'd have this uh, tax on the on the big tech companies. And there's fars and against on that, uh, you know, on, on we're coming from Ireland where, you know, Ireland, I think, was six on the global scale of tax avoidance and so on as a, being a tax haven. We know the Irish government is never going to tax these companies and we want big tech paying taxes. They don't now, in large part, facilitate it by Ireland. We do want them paying their share. But at the same time, there is a danger in sort of allowing the EU to raise revenue because it's taken away national sovereignty and the other alternative saying, well, tax the big tech companies, but allow the governments to administer that and then hand over to the EU might be better. So these are complex discussions, I think, in the context of this one, because Corona is a one off and we definitely don't want people. The citizens paying, we supported some of the measures because the idea of the status quo continuing where those companies don't um, pay anything because of the likes of Ireland, because the system is structured that you pay where you're resident, that it's far better to move to a situation where they, they're paying something across borders, because obviously big tech is across borders, but it's a really important discussion and, and will be for the future as well. Yeah. Any last remarks there before we wrap up? Claire I, has a hair appointment so I she didn't, has to run uh, off. That's an absolute outrage. I have a very important meeting to go to. <laughs> um, no, but I've no book this week but I wanted to Amy refer to there were people in uh, some of the refugees from Moria have produced a documentary Citizen of Moria. Uh, we had a fellow um, Jaward, uh, one of the refugees in contact with us so we're going to look at, rather than a book, I'm going to recommend that, but I have to look at a way in which we can make it available to people by linking up with them. It's truly horrific and people should watch it now because it's current and it's live, but we'll make that available through our social media outlets. So there you have it. That's the state of the union. Absolute state of it. <laughs> the state of Europe. But listen, we didn't come over here to tell them they were great. We came over here to change the system and we said, if we can't change it, we'll burn it. I was asked just... Uh, uh, I was asked, I was on uh, Russia Today uh, about the the science trial uh, the other day. Oh, that was brilliant. And and, uh, the interviewer says to me, are you saying that there may be issues? Are are you questioning uh, British justice? And I said, come on, lad, are you serious? Uh, I said, do you know who you're talking to? I said, I'm Irish, I said. 
I said, I think we got our, our, our fill of British justice uh, over the last 800 years. <laughs> Let's go out on that. I think we'll give our listeners a nice um, right? listen okay. to Russia today. <laughs> Keep them informed. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> good luck. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. And yeah, all the best. Bye bye. <laughs> If you can't see what's happening, well, you don't know what's going so on. So you don't trust the uh, British I mean, justice system, then? <laughs> oh, God, you're asking an Irish person. Do you, hear, do you understand that? <laughs> um, listen, um, we, we probably got our fill of uh, British justice for about 800 years, uh, so we, we probably wouldn't be the best to be asking. 